Chapter 19 of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter 19. They say that the Magdalene was not really a Magdalene, that tradition has forgotten the text and mixed her with a woman of Bethany just as Potiphar's wife is carelessly branded with the deeds of another woman. But Mem, as she cowered on the sand, felt as humble as the Magdalene in the pictures, though the man who looked down upon her so tenderly had never posed as a Galilean, even in the miracle play they give every summer in the canyon at Hollywood. Tom Holby's profession was the opposite of a preacher's. He tried to show how people actually did behave, not how they ought to. His authors would not let him be very real, but always forced a moral, and that is the true immorality of the moving pictures. Not that they present wickedness so that innocent people may imitate it, but that they present life as if it punished wickedness and rewarded virtue, which is a pretty lie, but a lie nonetheless. While Holby had an instant suspicion that Mem was not telling him the truth, he felt no call to rebuke her or to wring it from her. He thought, she's pretty, she's in trouble. My business is to be as nice to her as I can. He lifted her from the sand, brushed her off, and went for her suitcase, which had been dumped into the stunted stubs of a choya cactus, that vegetable porcupine whose frosty barbs were fiendishly ingenious in creeping into his skin. Holby brought away a few spines that would cause him long agony until with a knife and pliers, he should gouge them out. The darts of Cupid might have been plucked from the same bush, and Holby found the thoughts of this shy girl like cactus spines embedded in his thoughts tormentingly. As he lugged the suitcase back to the road, he tripped on the long skirts of his Arabian burnoose. He had practiced walking in it when he was before the camera, but he was thinking of Mem now. He was thinking... She was not married when I met her on the train. A week later, she's a widow. She has gone through two earthquakes in quick succession, a honeymoon and a funeral. I have found that whenever a calamity occurs to anybody, lack of money adds to the horror of it. His instinct was not to save her soul, but to make her body comfortable. And so, when he set the suitcase down by Mem, he asked her to rest upon it and stood between her and the sun while he spoke very earnestly. Tell me, to mind my own business, if I'm impertinent, but may I ask you one question? Did your husband leave you any money? Mem was so startled that she mumbled, A little. Not much? N not much. Enough? For a while. Have you come here to be with your parents or friends or relatives? No, I'm looking for a position as a chambermaid. My God, you? Her eyes were amazed at his horror. He cried again. You with your beauty? Oh, no. She had been brought up on a motto. Praise to the face is open disgrace. She snubbed him with a fierce toss of the head. He laughed aloud. He had been a small-town youth and had known that model, but he had been so long among women who were of a quite opposite mind that he was amused by the quaint backwoods ideal of regarding charm as a thing unmentionable in polite society. While he was trying to keep his face straight, as he apologized, a sharp voice broke in upon them. 
A man in a pith helmet, dark goggles, and a riding suit had steered a restive horse close to them and was complaining. Say, Holby, do you realize you're keeping the whole company waiting in this ghastly heat? I beg your pardon, Mr. Folger. Just a moment, old man. Let me present you to Miss... Mrs. Woodville. The director touched his helmet and nodded curtly. As he whirled his horse to ride back to his caravan, Holby ran and, seizing his bridle, led the horse aside and talked to Folger earnestly. Look here, old man. That girl is a friend of mine and beautiful as a peach. She's got the skin and the eyes that photograph to beat the band. She's just lost her husband and come out to this hellhole to be a chambermaid. It's too outrageous to think of. Give her a chance, won't you? The director twisted in his saddle and stared at Mem with expert eyes, then laughed at Holby. Is she a sweetie of yours? None of that now. She's as nice as they make em, but I can't stand the thought of working on a ranch, making beds and wrestling slop jars. Give her a test and put her in the mob scene or something, and don't tell Robina I told you to, in heaven's name. Folger was puzzled. Robina Teal was a troublemaker in the company, but she made profitable trouble in the hearts of the public. Just now she was smitten with Tom Holby, and she had dealt fiercely with one or two minor actresses he had been polite to. But it was bad studio politics to encourage these tyrannies. Stars had to be disciplined with care, like racehorses, yet curbed somehow. If Holby could be freed from Teal's domination, even by the sharp knife of jealousy, it might be a good thing for the next picture. Folger cast another look at Mem. There was a fresh meekness about her, an aura of gracious appeal. It would do no harm to try her out. If she were a failure, no one would know it. If she were a discovery, he would get the credit. It would not hurt him to do Holby a favor, for the director's own contract was under question of renewal, and a good word from Holby would not come amiss. All right, he said. I'll take a chance. Two of the extra women keeled over this morning from the heat. I'll have my assistant take her to the wardrobe woman and get her fitted out and made up. She can appear in the famine scene, and I'll bring her forward for a close-up. If she looks good in the rushes, we'll keep her on. And now, for heaven's sake, get back on your camel, for the cameramen are just about ready to drop. He set spurs to his horse and rode across the field with his megaphone to his lips as he bellowed his orders. The caravan resumed its plodding advance, and Holby turned back to say to remember, I've taken a great liberty. I can't bear the thought of your working as a servant when there may be a big career before you in the pictures. The director saw you, and he wants you to, to help him out. There's a shortage in the company for the big scene, and you'd be a godsend. Try it and see if you like it. If you don't, there's no harm done, and you'll be paid well for your trouble. If you do like it, why, but to please me, I mean the director, do this, won't you? He knew people well enough to glean from the first glance into her eyes that Mem was appalled at the prospect of playing in the movies, and that his one hope was to put his gift in the form of a petition. Before she could quite realize what she was doing, Mem had said, well, of course, if it would be doing you a favor, an immense favor. I don't know anything, you know. That's all the better. You have nothing to unlearn. Here's Mr. Ellis, the assistant director. He'll take care of you. I've got to go. 
he introduced a young man who rode up and dismounted with all the meekness of the meekest office on earth that of assistant director in a tone of more than vice-presidential humility ellis explained to mem what she was to do she was aghast at this sudden plunge into the deep waters of an unknown sea she turned to tell tom holby that she really could not accept but he was in no position to hear her he was in every position as his camel rose to its knees holby was flopped about in the air with a violence that threatened to throw his head afar like a stone in a sling when the camel had established itself on its four sofa-cushioned feet it moved off with an undulating motion as sickening as an english channel's steamers mem turned to appeal to the man who had promised to drive her to the randalls ranch but he was standing far out in a sea of sage and cactus dolefully regarding his wagon which lay on its back with three and a half wheels spinning in the air and the other half of one scattered about the desert while mem floundered in the sands of her own uncertainties many camels went by and horses in gorgeous trappings then followed a string of light automobiles loaded with machinery that she did not understand with lighting equipment with airplane propellers to kick up a sandstorm and with paraphernalia of every sort after these walked and rode a great crowd of men and women in arabian costumes their faces and hands painted in raw colors ellis checked one of the cars in which sat a woman mrs kittery to whom he introduced mrs woodville explaining what was to be done with her get in here my dear said mrs kittery and before mem could protest mr ellis had flung her suitcase in helped her to a seat slammed the tin door on her swung into his saddle and away the car kept to what road there was and mrs kittery soon learned how abysmal mem's innocence was but she was used to the ignorance of extra women and she was glad that mem was not a chinese a turk or an indian she could at least understand english after a long and furiously jolty passage over the sand the caravan of motors and the mob of suffering extras came to a halt on the shady side of a cluster of arabian tents mrs kittery asked one of the extra women to make up mrs woodville while she found a costume in the hamper this amiable person was still unknown to fame as leva lemaire really mrs david wilkinson whose husband had been killed in the war leaving her with three children whom she supported by this form of toil she preferred it to her previous experiences as a schoolteacher and a trained nurse she made from forty to fifty dollars a week and sometimes more and she led a life of picturesque travel from nationality to nationality a mexican one week a hindu another a farm wife again a squaw or a harem odalisk mem felt that the extra woman's life had its fascinations the art was the business to mrs wilkinson and she called it that she was generous with grease paint and information and she had a village mind that translated to mem's village mind these foreign customs in a language she could understand only such a steady-souled person could have kept mem from bolting in panic before the ordeal of having her face calcimined and tinted her eyelids painted the lashes leaded her eyebrows penciled her lips incarnadined and red dots put here and there to give depth to her the decoration of the face with any color from outside had been hitherto an advertisement of eager vice and now she was a painted woman too mrs wilkinson's own face was decorated like an indian warrior's 
including certain blotches of carmine, which she explained, My nose is too broad and flat, so I paint the sides of it red, and that photographs like a shadow. And I have a double chin, which disappears in the picture, thanks to the red, and I narrow my fat cheeks the same way. But you don't need any of that modeling. You're perfect. Mem was dazed by this constant reference to her beauty. At home it had been a guiding principle that praising children made them conceited. These first compliments came like slaps in the face. But she was beginning to find them stimulating. By the time Mem was varnished, Mrs. Kittery had arrived with gaudy costumes, earrings, necklaces, and bracelets. Mem was soon so disguised that when Leva Lemaire offered her a pink in the mirrored top of her makeup box, she could not recognize herself at all. She looked like a cheap chromo of somebody else. There's two things you'll learn about the business, if you stay in it, said Leva. You've got to get up at an ungodly hour and break your neck making ready on time. And then you've got to sit around for hours and hours with nothing to do. Half the time they don't reach you all day. And most of the scenes you're taken in are cut out of the final picture. Otherwise, it's a nice life. And now that her pores were stuffed with paint, which it was disastrous to mop with a handkerchief, Mem had the task of waiting while the hot wind brought the great drops of sweat to her skin and the blown sand kept up an incessant scratching. In the distance, in the relentless flagellation of the sun, the principals of the company enacted before a group of cameras a drama that Mem could not understand. The camels defiled slowly, then galloped back, and defiled slowly again and again. There were long arguments. The director and his assistant dashed back and forth, trumpeting through their megaphones. The camels alone revealed artistic temperament. They began to fight one another. A group of two dragged their terrified passengers hither and yon and knocked over a camera. One of them fled, and dumping his belfryman, got clean away. He was not found until the next day, and then in Palm Canyon, where he reveled in a perfect duplicate of a homeland oasis. Leva explained to Mem what all the pother was about. You see, they take everything first at a distance. Long shots, they call them. They have three cameras here, but something always goes wrong or looks as if it could be improved, so they make a lot of takes. Then they come closer and take medium shots to cut into the long shots. Then they take close-ups of the most dramatic moments. All these have to match, though they usually don't, so that they can be assembled in the studio for the finished picture. The camels go by one way to show they're passing a certain spot. Then they go by the same spot in the opposite direction to show the return. But in the finished picture, that won't take place till a week later. But they take the things that happen on the same spot at the same time, no matter where they occur in the picture. It keeps the actors awfully mussed up in their minds. They don't know whether they're playing today, last month, or two years from now. That's Robina Teal on that biggest camel. She's earning her money today by the sweat of her whole system. She's sweet on Tom Holby and as jealous of him as a fiend. She's an awful cat. But he's a mighty nice boy, not spoiled a bit by being advertised as the most beautiful thing in the world. I was in a scene with him once. He was just as considerate as if I had been Norma Talbage or Pauline Frederick. While the extras waited and simmered, their luncheon was served. The property crew went about among them, dealing out pasteboard boxes containing sandwiches wrapped in oiled papers, 
a bit of fried chicken, hard-boiled eggs, a piece of cake, and a Californian fruit, a peach, a pear, grapes, figs, a banana, or an orange. There was a cauldron of coffee for those that wanted it hot, iced tea, and bottles of pop. Mem had never been on a better-fed picnic. The women and men squatted on the ground and ate, swapping fruit and repartee. Some of the jokes sent blushes flying beneath the layers of paint on Mem's skin. There was a vast amount of caustic fun made of the principals, the director, and the management. But Mem tried to remind herself that the sewing circles at home were just as busy tearing down the reputations of the neighbors, only with a holier-than-thou contempt entirely lacking here. There was a gypsy spirit in this company that Mem had never met. The gaiety was irresistible, and she managed to control her horror when she found that she was almost the only woman who refused a cigarette. Even Mrs. Wilkinson dug up a package from her desert robes. The principals had their refreshments taken to them, and snatched it between scenes. Robina did not eat at all. She lived in an eternal Lent, since she had to fight a sneaking tendency to plumpness. She suffered anguishes of fasting and privation like a religious zealot, but from the opposite reason. The zealots crucified the flesh because it was the devil's lure. She, in order to give it allurement and keep time's claws off her as long as possible. So now, in a heat that drove the desert Indians into the shade and idleness, these dainty actresses and actors invited sunstroke and labored with muscles and emotions at full blast in order to make pictures and minimize the appalling overhead expense of every wasted hour. After a time, the extras were called forth from the comparative shelter of the tents to the scene of action. It was like being tossed from the red-hot stove lid into the very fire. To Mem, it was all incredible phantasmagory. She could not believe that this was she who stumbled across the sand twitching her skirts out of the talons of the cactuses, carefully dabbing the sweat from her face with a handkerchief, already colored like a painter's brush rag, and jingling as she walked with barbaric jewelry. The mob went forward slowly, and she recognized Tom Holby on a camel. She hoped that he would not recognize her, but he studied all the faces, and being used to disguises, made her out and hailed her with the password. How are you standing it? She called up to him. All right, thank you. There was vast interest in her from now on. The leading man had singled out an extra woman for special attention, and the gossip went round with a rush as of wings. Mem did not know that she was already a public property. She would have fled as from a plague if she had known. Later, she would come to realize that these people loved to believe the worst, forgive it, and absolve it with a forbearance met hardly anywhere else except in heaven. The director massed the extras together and addressed them from his horse. Ladies and gentlemen, you are supposed to be an Arabian tribe driven from your homes by the cruel enemy. You are wandering across the desert without food or water, dying of hunger and thirst. Later in the afternoon, if we can reach it, you will be overtaken by a sandstorm, and many of you will perish miserably. It's hard work, I know, but if you will go to it, we'll be out of this hell hole tomorrow, and there will be more comfortable work in the cool night shots. So make it snappy, folks, and do what you were told on cue, with all the pep you can put into it. I thank you. The company was then divided into groups, with business assigned to each. Long shots were taken again and again. 
small groups were posed with as much care as if the sun were benign instead of diabolic close-ups of individuals were taken the most striking types being selected and coached to express crisis of feeling you go mad and babble old man will you tear at your throat and let your tongue hang out you miss will you fall back in your mother's arms you be mother will you miss and catch her you're to die you know just roll your eyes back and sigh and seek into a heap and you mother wring your hands and beat your breast and wail you understand oriental stuff eh and i'd like somebody just to look up to heaven and pray for mercy somebody with big eyes let me see no you're i'm saving you for the you the young lady over there will you step out please come on come on i won't bite unless i'm kept waiting it's warm you know folks come out please oh it's mrs woodbridge isn't it i met you this morning here's your chance do this for me like a good girl and give yourself to it look up to heaven if the sun brings tears to your eyes all right but let them come from your soul dear if you can you see you have seen your people dying like flies about you from famine and hardship you look up and say oh god you don't mean for us to die in this useless torture do you dear god take my life and let these others live won't you dear god something like that you know don't look up yet you'll blind yourself wait till i get the camera set here boys make a very close close-up of this mem stood throbbing from head to foot with embarrassment and with a strange inrush of alien moods the fierce eyes of the director burning through his dark glasses the curious instigation in his voice the plea to do well for him quickened her magically the cameramen set up their tripods before her the lenses like threatening muzzles aimed point-blank then they bent and squinted through their finders and brought tapes up and held them so close that their hot hands touched her when they measured her exact distance then adjusted the focuses one of them lifted the fold of her hood a little aside from her brow the director stared at her keenly then put out his hand and asked for a powder puff he dusted her face gently to dull the glistening surface they treated her as if she were an automaton and she became one a mere channel for an emotion to gush through folger took her by the arm and murmured just once now dear before we make the take remember what i told you let your heart break give us all you've got look round first and see your dying people that's your father over there just gasping his life out your mother lies dead back there you've covered her poor little body with sand to keep the jackals from it your own heart is broken in a thousand pieces can you do it will you that's right look round now and let yourself go she felt herself bewitched benumbed yet mystically alive to a thousand tragedies her eyes rolled around the staring throng some of them were helping her by looking their agony others were out of the mood adjusting their robes freshening their makeup or whispering and smiling but the gift of belief the genius of substitution fell upon her like a flame and nothing mattered they had brought music out into this inferno a wheezy organ a cello and a violin that cried like the linnet that had lost her way and sang on a blackened bough in hell her heavy eyes made out tom holby gazing down at her from his camel and pouring sympathy from his own soul into hers then she flung her head from side to side in a torment of woe cast her head back and heaved her big eyes up 
into the cruel brazier of the skies, seemed to see God peering down upon the little multitude and moved her lips in supplication. She felt the words and the anguish wringing her throat, and the tears came trooping from her eyes, ran shining into her mouth, and she swallowed them and found them bitter sweet with an exultation of agony. She did not know that the director had whispered, Camera, and was watching her like a tiger, striving to drive his own energy into her. She did not hear the cameramen turning their cranks. There was such weird reality in her grief that the director's glasses were blurred with his own tears. The cameramen were gulping hard. She did happen to note, as her upward stare encountered Tom Holby's eyes on high, that tears were dripping from his lashes and that his mouth was quivering. The sight of his tears sent through her a strange pang of triumphant sympathy, and she broke down sobbing, would have fallen to the sand if Leva Lemaire had not caught her and drawn her into her arms, kissing her and whispering, Wonderful! Wonderful! She felt a hand on her arm and was drawn from Leva's arms into a man's. Her shoulders were squeezed hard by big hands, and she heard a voice that identified her captor as the director. He was saying, God bless you, that was the real stuff. We won't make you do it over. We had two cameras on you. You're all right. You're a good girl. The real thing. Then she began to laugh and choke and became an utter fool. This was her first experience of the passion of mimicry. She was as shamed as glorified, as drained yet as exultant, as if a god had seized her and embraced her fiercely for a moment, then left her aching, an ember in the ashes. The director was already calling the mob to the next task. She could not help glancing toward Tom Holby. His camel was moving off with the crowd, but he was turning back to gaze at her. He was nodding his head in approval, and he raised his hand in a salute of profound respect. End of chapter 19 Recording by Deanna Beauvais